Okay. Let's go before the Lord again. Heavenly Father, Lord, we thank you for this time that you have given us to hear from you, to hear from your word that you have recorded for us, to hear from the Holy Spirit helping us to understand the things of Christ, eternal things, things of life and salvation. We honor you for kindness to give us life, even spiritual life. We thank you for all those that you've gathered this morning here and those in the different places. Lord, may you grant us all ears to hear from you. We honor you, glorify you. In Jesus' name we pray. Amen. Good morning again, one and all. This morning we are in Romans chapter 5. We are in Romans chapter 5. And we are going to be working our message from verses 6 to 11. And if you will be praying for me for strength, I'll be moving a little bit slow. We'll see. But be praying for me that the Lord will give me the ability to communicate his truth. And be praying for yourself also that the Lord will illuminate the things of Christ to your spirit. Apostle Paul, by the Holy Spirit, recorded and said, verse 6 of Romans 5, For when we were still without strength, in due time Christ died for the ungodly. For scarcely for a righteous man will one die, Yet perhaps for a good man, someone would even dare to die. But God demonstrates his own love toward us. In that while we were still sinners, Christ died for us. Much more than having now been justified by his blood, we shall be saved from wrath through him. For if when we were enemies, we were reconciled to God through the death of the Son, much more, having been reconciled, we shall be saved by his life. And not only that, but we also rejoice in God through our Lord Jesus Christ, through whom we have now received the reconciliation. And that's the word of the Lord. May he make it profitable to our ears. For titles, we have a record number of titles. Number one, without strength. Number two, in due time. Number three, died for the ungodly, which I decided to be the title to carry the message, died for the ungodly. Number four, Christ died for us. Number five, justified by his blood. Number six, reconciled to God. And number seven, saved from wrath. And that's our message. We are done. <laughs> we are done. <laughs> Can you just go and chill? Because we have pretty much preached the whole thing. 
But let's open it this way. Apostle Paul has labored and taught us that the elect have been justified by God through the faithfulness of the Lord Jesus Christ. They have been justified apart from the works of the law, apart from their own obedience. They have been freely justified, declared as righteous without cause to be found in them by way of anything that they did, are doing, or will ever do. In other words, there is nothing that you and I will ever do or can do to be justified before God. If God is going to justify a sinner, it's going to be by his free act. He justifies you apart from anything that you have ever done, whether good or bad. And it is that part of the bad that people don't like because they want to be justified because of the good. But the Bible says we are without cause, freely declared as righteous. So, in other words, the Lord Jesus settled all matters of sin and righteousness for the sinner in a way that was agreeable to God, in a way that satisfied God for him to declare all of his elect as righteous before him. This is a settled matter. And this is the only possible, the only acceptable way for this matter to have been settled for any sinner if they should have any hope to meet with the holy God in peace. And Paul then gave an application to show how this reality is important to the life of the redeemed, of the believer. It is not just important for our meeting with God, but also in our present day, our day-to-day reality in our experience of life experience with sin experience, with tribulations, our sufferings in this life, this understanding, this knowledge is very helpful for us. Yes, Apostle Paul did not attend the Joe Austin Church, <laughs> the Your Best Life Now Church. That was not his gospel. He said in Philippians 1.29, For to you it has been granted on behalf of Christ not only to believe, for to you it has been granted by God on behalf of Christ that you should believe. 
but also to suffer for his sake. But also to suffer for his sake. So your trials have been granted by God as has been your faith. But this is all very purposeful on the part of God. It is to the end that certain desirable qualities are formed in his people. Such things as perseverance, which is patience, which is a happy or cheerful disposition, even under the burden or pressure of difficult circumstances. And this was supposed to bring about a cascade of other positive effects. The perseverance, the patience would work out other things. Other things would flow out of that, like character, and then from character, hope. And Paul expanded that list in Galatians and called it the fruit of the Spirit. Galatians 5, 22 and 23. But the fruit of the Spirit is love, joy, peace, long-suffering, kindness, goodness, faithfulness, gentleness, self-control. Against such there is no law. In other words, the law cannot produce these kinds of qualities in a believer or in any person for that matter. These are things that are worked out by the Spirit of God and only under the new covenant. So we now have juicing machines that squeeze the juice out of fruits. And you extract the juice by applying pressure to the fruit, squeezing it out. And so the pressing, the tribulations, the circumstances of life, though undesirable to our flesh, are God's way to work and bring out the best in us that is useful to him. When you squeeze the juice out of the orange, it is not for the benefit of the orange. It is to your benefit who is squeezing. So God would have us to be as much as possible, have some of these qualities because they are desirable to him. They are useful to him for the testimony of Christ. And Paul says, this all drives us to look to our hope. The pressing, the tribulations drive us ever to look to Christ. And this hope is the hope of our final salvation in the appearing of our Lord Jesus. 
And this hope does not disappoint because it is not based on false promises. It is not based on what men and women will promise you to happen 20,000 years from now. There's no man who has such ability to promise something that is 20,000 years away from us. It is based on God who cannot lie, the God who cannot die, the God who cannot be frustrated, the God who is faithful, and the Christ who made everything good between the sinner and God. God has already given the best that he can give in the person of Christ. He gave his son to die, the highest of God's possession, if I would be allowed to say that. Christ Jesus is what God has given to us. Given to us that he may redeem us. So Christ has been given as the highest gift. And if God has given the best that can be given, how shall he not, with all these other things, give us everything in Christ Jesus, all the lesser things in Christ? In this life, we are always getting disappointed because we do not get what others have promised us in most cases. We do not get even what we promise to give ourselves. There are a lot of unfulfilled promises for lack of power, for lack of strength, for lack of will, for lack of faithfulness on our part and lack of faithfulness on the other part, on the part of other people. For lack of resources, we just don't have enough resources to carry through with what we may have promised or want to do. So we are always going to be found lacking in one thing or another. But with God, there's no promise that will ever go unfulfilled. On his end, God has poured out his love. And the language of pouring is speaking to abundance. And this is how he did it. He gave and will give his Holy Spirit to all the redeemed, to all believers. And the Holy Spirit is he who gives testimony or communication of God's love towards us in Christ. Because the Holy Spirit knows the mind of God and he searches the deep things of God. And he tells us those things that were freely given us by God. If the matter that we are talking about is not freely given, 
by God, then it does not respect your salvation. All matters of salvation have been freely given, unconditionally given. So the Holy Spirit testifies of the total forgiveness of all our sins, the very sins that we are now experiencing. We are experiencing our sins now because we were not born 5,000 years ago. <laughs> we are experiencing our sins in the time that God brought us to be. And yet, the God who knows all things knows every sin that has been committed, is being committed, and shall be committed. And with that, all those sins were already paid for in Christ Jesus. So the Holy Spirit testifies of our eternal security in Christ. The Holy Spirit is the seal, the guarantee, and the deposit that God has given as claim of possession of all those who are redeemed. He seals us. He is the signet ring of the king. It was back in the day when they would send a letter. The letter was sealed with wax. And the king had his ring stamped on the wax. And that means it could not be opened by anybody to whom it was not addressed. So all the redeemed have been sealed by the seal of the king, and that is the Holy Spirit, to mark possession of them, to authenticate their salvation. So having described the pouring out of God's love, Paul now goes into describing for us the character of God's love so that we may have an appreciation of the degree and nature of that love and why its pouring out assures believers of hope. First, God demonstrated his love by the death of his son that was and is the ultimate demonstration of God's love. Verse 6 of Romans 5, so we are in our text. Verse 6 says, For when we were still without strength, in due time Christ died for the ungodly. This was the spiritual condition of all who are now the redeemed, of all who now have hope, who should not have hope. They are described as those who did not have strength. They did not have strength to do what? To be righteous. To keep the law. To come to God by their own power. 
no strength to hear and believe spiritual things. And Paul will tell us how they became to be without strength in the verses I had in this chapter. But for the purpose of this message, we will say it is because of Adam, and we shall expound Adam more in the next messages to come. But the sin of Adam left all men and women without spiritual strength. And so the believer should not think themselves as anybody who has any strength in spiritual matters, not naturally. We had an empty bucket of strength, like zero strength. And in that state of no strength, we had no hope. We had no strength to even know that we were hopeless. We did not have even the ability to know that we were hopeless. We had no strength to redeem ourselves from the slave market of sin. We were stuck forever in the mire, in the dead. Luke 6, verse 6. Luke records for us and says, Now it happened on another Sabbath, also that he entered the synagogue, that is Jesus, that he entered the synagogue and taught. And a man was there whose right hand was withered. And a man was there whose right hand was withered. He was in the synagogue. He was attempting to worship God and had a withered hand. How much work can one do with a withered hand? It was dried up. It was shrunken like a plant that has had no water and no nutrition. It had become just a dangling appendage to his sword. Just there. It had no strength to do anything. Even if you were to give him a nail clipper, he could not use it. He could not hold a straw with it. It was withered. It had no strength. And that not describing the arm, but the condition of the arm depicting a deeper spiritual reality of men and women, of our lack of strength spiritually. Even though we may be found in the place of worship as this man was found with his withered hand in the synagogue. And that is the matter that the Holy Spirit is speaking through Paul and saying, whilst we were without strength, we had no strength. Let us hear again from Dr. Luke, Luke 13, 10 to 11. 
Luke 13, 10 to 11. Now he was teaching in one of the synagogues on the Sabbath. And behold, there was a woman who had a spirit of infirmity 18 years and was bent over and could in no way raise herself up. What was her physical condition? She was bent over with a hump on her back because of the spirit of infirmity. And what ability was she left with to help her condition? Luke says, bent over and could in no way raise herself up. She could not raise herself up. She could not go to the chiropractor to make it straight. She needed more than an adjustment of the spine. Why could not, why could she not use her free will and decision to raise herself up? No, there's nothing like that. It is impossible. Paul says, she was without strength. What was weighing her down, it was the spirit of infirmity. But in the matter of salvation, what was weighing her down? It was sin and the law. Sin is the spirit of infirmity, is the spirit of infirmity that has put us all in that bent and bowed position from which we cannot naturally raise ourselves up to God and be righteous. Yes, she was coming to worship, but she could not look up to heaven because she was bent and bowed down. And the weight of the law makes it impossible for us to raise ourselves up to a straight position, to a righteous position. The burden of the law is heavy. You cannot lift yourself up out of it. That's why she was in that position. But what happened to the woman? Still Luke 13, verse 12, 13. But when Jesus saw her, he called her to him and said to her, Woman, you are loosed from your infirmity. Jesus saw her. That is not just seeing of seeing some common person. That is a seeing of recognition of one of his sheep who is bowed down. What does the shepherd do to the sheep? He called her to him. The sheep do not call the shepherd. The shepherd call or calls the, sh the sheep. He called her to him. My sheep hear my voice. 
It is Christ who calls us to himself. That we may be made straight. What did Jesus say to her? Your royal, your royal highness, I seek now thou your permission to make you straight. <laughs> no. He said, woman, you are loosed from your infirmity. That's a sovereign declaration. That's a sovereign decision. The woman did not ask for it. Woman, you who have no strength because of your infirmity, because of your sin, have been set free from your infirmity, set free from your sickness, set free from your sin, set free from the bondage and condemnation of the law that keeps you bowed down and bent over. The law cannot make the crooked straight. Christ alone is able to loose a sinner from Moses, from the condemnation of sin, even from the devil, and make them straight and make them righteous. Verse 18, Luke 13, and he laid his hands on her and immediately she was made straight and glorified God. See the flow of events, the movement of things. Jesus calls her and he makes a pronouncement of a freedom. You are loosed from your infirmity. Then he laid his hands on her, the hands that would later make payment for the loosing of all of her sins and the sins of his people. And she immediately was made straight. When the Christ has laid his hands on all who should be served, they are made straight. They're made straight from the crookedness that sin caused them. From the unrighteousness that sin caused them. And what is the response of those who have been made loose and she glorified God? That is the end of things. Salvation is for the redeemed to glorify God for having loosed them from their infirmity and made them straight, made them righteous before him. That's what you ought to be thanking God for, that you came and made me straight. I, who had no strength, can stand straight. So the withered hand made straight and given life because it was just not made straight. It was given life. It was strengthened. The woman with a bent and bowed down back made straight in due time. After having been crippled for 18 long years, And it happened in God's 
appointed time in the appearance of Christ. It happened in the appearance of Christ. And so Paul said, in due time, Christ died for the ungodly. The transaction of salvation was scheduled from eternity by God's decree, but it happened in due time. Christ was appointed as the lamb to die from before the foundation of the world. But to die in due time, when the imputation of sin would happen. Jesus did not die from eternity. And was not guilty from eternity. But was from eternity maturity and substitute for his people in the covenant with his father. Sin could not be imputed to Christ from eternity because he had to take up human flesh first. Sin is imputed to the sacrifice in the likeness of those that it represents. So until the incarnation, Christ was not guilty of our sins, and yet he was a surety. Galatians 4, verse 4 and 5. But when the fullness of the time had come, God sent forth his son, born of a woman, born under the law, to redeem those who were under the law that we might receive the adoption essence. When the fullness of the time had come, so there was an appointed time from eternity where the transaction had to happen in the coming of the sun, in the fullness. So all of God's transactions happen in due time, in the fullness of time. And that is to say, all of God's elect were redeemed in the fullness of time, in the fullness of the time that God appointed for the high priest and for the sacrifice, that is Christ, to come and make the payment. And that means on the cross, Jesus redeemed and justified for all time the elect. The movement of the stars, of the planets and everything was a big time machine that was looking to the coming of Christ. They all testify of that time. It is impossible for God to schedule the appearance of Christ. And then when that Christ shows up and not make straight the withered hand, not make straight the backs of those who have been bent and bowed down 
and not open the eyes of the blind and not set the captives free because he has the key out of prison. He came with the key and set Barabbas free. That's what he came to do. And that is to say, the matter of salvation has time stamps. And the cross being the place where the documents were to be signed and were signed. There was a lot of stuff that was happening on the cross. I've bought and sold two houses to date. And once you find a buyer and you're selling a property, and the buyer agrees to the asking price, you still have not yet sold the house. You're still liable for all the bills, the taxes that are due. No matter how faithful the buyer is known to be, could be a Warren Buffett. And no matter how much money they have, until on closing day, they come and put down their signature to that mortgage contract that transfers ownership so that they are now assuming ownership and responsibilities of that place, the sale is not happening. And that is to say, Jesus must appear in the fullness of time regardless of his faithfulness. To the closing of our mortgage debt, to the closing of all our debts. And once he takes up human nature, And once he goes to Mount Calvary, he assumes all the debt, their payment. And he signs the documents with his own blood. And so he did. He did all that in due time when we were without strength to pay. And we, even then and now, are the ungodly. So God shows his love in that he gave Jesus to die for the ungodly. So the ungodly are the same people whom Paul said were without strength. They're the one and the same people. And at the right time, Jesus came to their rescue. Because if Jesus does not come at the right time, or does not come at all, then those who are without strength and are ungodly have no hope at all because the time clock is moving, is ticking towards final judgment. They can only remain in sin, can only remain at the bottom of the sea. They have no way to remove the condemnation of sin that is upon them. And sin must first be condemned on the sinner before it is imputed to Christ. 
Eve must first eat before Adam eats. Because Adam is a type of Christ. Eve has to eat first because she is a type of the church. Before Adam comes and joins himself to the condemnation. Because Jesus was not the sinner. Even Paul says Adam is not the one who was beguiled. But there's a problem. Many people even now do not think themselves as ungodly. They do not consider themselves as those without strength. But in Luke 18, verse 9, Jesus said, Also he spoke this parable to some who trusted in themselves that they were without strength. (laughs) No, that parable would not have been spoken. He spoke this parable to some who trusted in themselves that they were righteous and despised others. Yes, some who trusted in themselves that they were righteous, that they were godly. And because of that false assessment of themselves, they naturally despise others. They despise those whom they think are not performing at their own level. Yes, it may be true that you are doing better than me and the next person. But Jesus says, the deception is when you think you are more righteous than any other person or that you are actually righteous and you begin to trust in yourself. It is impossible to trust in Christ's righteousness and also to trust in your own righteousness. One has to give. It's either you're trusting your own righteousness or you're trusting the righteousness of Christ, but never both of them at the same time. One must give room to another or to the other. They cannot share the same room. And the Pharisee thought he was doing better than the tax collector by every measure and in every department of life. In giving, he said, oh, I give 10% of everything. In marriage, he said, oh, I'm no adulterer. I do not commit adultery. I'm not like this man. I'm not like other men. In dealings with other men, I'm not an extortioner. I don't get anything from people by force. But Jesus came and gave him a failing grade and a passing grade to the tax collector. The tax collector was counted among the ungodly by the Jews because they worked for Rome and they were thieves. <laughs> the tax collectors are godly and without strength. And yet, these alone end up passing with flying colors. 
God be merciful to me, sinner that I am. And Jesus said, oh, that dude got 100% on the exam. The text collector received the love of God because he went home justified. His sins not imputed to him in judgment. So what is my qualification in this matter? What do I bring? What do you bring? Weakness and ungodliness. But in this, God proclaims the gospel of substitutionary atonement by the death of the Lord Jesus Christ. He said in due time, Christ died for the ungodly. For translates the Greek word hyper, H-Y-P-E-R, and it means on behalf of, in the place of, in the room instead of. And that is one of the most important words there is to be found in the matter of the gospel transaction. Die, sorry, Jesus died in the place of those that were supposed to die. And that is saying, death was the wages, the payment for their sins. The ungodly were supposed to be condemned to death. But even in that state, they had no power to suffer that death in a way that they could be redeemed by their own dying. They were under the sentence of death. But Christ, he who had strength and was holy, undefiled, took their place instead. He became the victim in their place. He owned their sin as if he committed it. He owned what they owed because of their sin. And he, the just for the unjust, suffered and paid in full for all that was owed by his people. And since he died for the ungodly, then it means the only way for the ungodly to know their proper standing before God is not for them to look to themselves in constant introspection, but to look to what God says about the person who stood in their place. What Jesus actually is said to have done. If the ungodly keep looking to themselves for salvation, they can only see more weakness and ungodliness and disappointment. But if they are reminded of the death of Christ for the ungodly, then they are filled with much hope 
a hope that does not disappoint. So Paul then seeks to amplify more the matter of God's love and the nature of it and says in verse 7, Romans 5, For scarcely for a righteous man will one die, yet perhaps for a good man someone would even dare to die. The people that everybody thinks are very good and righteous people in life, in society, as the best of men judges righteousness. A man or woman who would not even kill a fly. They are kind. They cause no trouble to anybody. And their righteousness is not the righteousness of the gospel. It is not possessing the righteousness of Christ. They're just a very decent human being. And Paul says, scarcely, hardly, probably not, would such a one even conceive of dying to preserve the life of such a one who is without strength, who is ungodly, if it were required of them. They would say to the one who is about to die, that is really sad, but I am not dying for them. And similarly, even for the good man, for a good man, who is in the same fold of the righteous man. And I'm thinking this is just Jewish repetition for emphasis. The righteous man and the good man are pretty much speaking about the same person. And Paul's point remains that for, that even for the good man, Perhaps they would consider doing it, but with some hesitation and misgiving. They would not do it wholeheartedly. They would not willingly give up themselves. So there is an unwillingness for us to sacrifice for others, even for the very good cause even for the very best of human beings. That's what Paul is arguing. And that is our level. And now Paul reasons from the lesser to the greater and says, verse 8, but God demonstrates his own love toward us in that while we were still sinners not even deserving of anyone to die for. We are not even good. We are not even righteous. While we were still sinners, Christ died for us. We didn't ask Jesus to die for us. So, but it's for transition and comparison. God demonstrates and the tense is keeps on showing his love toward us. How? By giving us the best life now, the best car, 
the best wife and husband and children, the best jobs, the better you. No, his love toward us in that while we were still sinners and did not know of salvation. Christ died for us anyway, in spite of us. Though a few people might possibly be willing to die to serve the lives of a few good people, though that is rare, Christ went beyond that. God's love is demonstrated in that Christ died for not just a few good men because there were none, but a lot of men, the elect, wicked men, sinful men and women, and he did it without any hesitation, without any regrets, without second thoughts. Men and women who were without strength, ungodly, still sinners, and enemies. So that is the summary of your resume according to your nature in Adam. No strength, ungodly, still sinner, and enemies to God. That's the summary of it. That's your condition in mind left to ourselves even on our very best day. And what does that mean in the matter of salvation? It means to get out of that God had to do something and he did something. It means salvation was done apart from your will, apart from your consultation and cooperation. It was wholly and independently done by God. Salvation did not flow from our realization of needing it. We did not even think that far. We could not think that far. God imposed it upon us. Grace is imposed on you, whether you like it or not. If God determined to bestow his love on you, there's nothing that he can do about it. He can run away. You want to come. His Christ obtained salvation for us. Salvation must be imposed by God on sinners, beloved. Because if God waits for sinners to choose salvation, none will be saved. The weak, the ungodly, the enemies of God do not choose salvation. He did it when we did not even realize the importance of it. The Jews despised the Lord Jesus and called him all kinds of names. They called him their enemy. They said he was demon-possessed. They called him what? A Samaritan. And yet he was their salvation. <laughs> so the sin and weakness of those who are redeemed magnifies God's love towards them. Because God in Christ gave them what they could not get from anywhere else. 
verse 9 of Romans 5. Much more than, having now been justified by his blood, we shall be saved from wrath through him. The sinners, the ungodly, the enemies of God, those without strength have been justified. They have been declared as righteous by his blood. The blood of Christ is the merit of your justification. It is the blood of Christ that justified all the elect from all their sins, from all the things that issued from their being without strength, their being ungodly, their being enemies of God, their being sinners. You and I are men and women of issues. We have a lot of issues. This blood, when it was shed, was for their justification, was their justification. It was on that cross that Jesus accomplished the justification for all for whom Christ was given to redeem. That is the good news of the gospel, being justified freely by the redemption that is in the blood of Christ. So what does that mean for us who have been caused to believe this message? Because we are going somewhere. We shall not always be on this planet. We shall not always be in this life. We are going somewhere. Paul says we shall be saved from wrath through him. There's a wrath to come. There's no doubt about that. And the blood of the cross is what has delivered us and will deliver us from that wrath. The cross alone is what stands between you and the wrath of God. It is not your faith. It is not the Pope. It is not the prayers of the dead saints. It is not your giving. It is not your works. It is not your faith. Because your faith is not the blood. Your faith testifies and gives confidence through the Holy Spirit of the power of that blood to deliver you from the wrath to come. Israel in Egypt, in the darkness of the night, some had faith. Some did not have faith. That is not what changed the events of the night. It's about the blood that was on the door lentils. It is the blood that stood between them and the judgment of God. When I see the blood, I shall pass over you. It's about the blood. The blood is what stands between you And the judgment of God. And there may have been some Egyptians who may have expressed faith in the God of Israel. But if they did not have the blood of the Lamb, guess what? They perished. They perished. 
the blood had to interpose. It had to come between them and the wrath of God. So the dilemma that your sin caused you before God, which is your justification, God has settled. God has settled. Your one issue, your justification has been settled. And you can't mess it up. It's impossible. It has been settled by the interposition of the blood of another, a, a representative man, the Lord Jesus. So rejoice and thank God for the cross. In some history books, when I was in high school, we were learning the history of Zimbabwe and its connection with Britain, because Zimbabwe was formerly a British colony. And in one of the chapters, there was Sisu Generals. I think everybody has heard of Sisu Generals. He formed his company, British East India Company, if I still remember well. And he had a friend, Sir Lyndon Johnson. And they were out at night over a fire, just talking and chatting. And Lyndon said to Cecil Generals, have you ever considered how blessed and beautiful it is to be called British? <laughs> I still remember this from more than 27, 20, almost 30 years ago. Have you ever considered how wonderful it is to belong to the British Empire and be called British? And have all the privileges that being a Briton brings. And with that, have you ever considered how beautiful and wonderful it is to be called the child of God? To have your sins taken, taken away. That's what I'm saying. To rejoice in that thought that God will never ever condemn you for all of eternity for any of your sins ever consider that. Hear me again. Believers will never be condemned to hell. And that for a number of reasons. John 5, 24. Jesus said, most assuredly, I say to you, he who hears my word and believes in him who sent me has everlasting life and shall not come into judgment, but he has passed from death unto life. These are the words that I put on the tombstone for my sister. These very words. Believers already possess eternal life in Christ. They have already been judged in the Christ who stood for them. And they come 
to judgment. The final judgment not to determine if they are qualified to have eternal life because of their works, because of their deeds, is how it is preached in many circles. But to declare and affirm, to vindicate that they indeed already passed from death to life. They already transitioned way before you came, way before you were born, you already transitioned because of the Christ who stood in your place. Faith in Christ is evidence that you already transitioned, that you shall never come into judgment. Judgment and condemnation are not the same thing. They are related. Because people, when they see judgment, they always see it in the negative sense. But that's not the correct way. Judgment is the Greek word crisis, where you get, I believe, our English crisis. And the Greek is K, the English is C. That's the only difference. Judgment is crisis and condemnation is catacrisis. Condemnation is the sentencing. It is the act of sentencing adversely with a damnatory judgment. That's damnation. Condemnation is descendants of damnation. But judgment is not necessarily damnation. Judgment means a separating, a weighing of things, so as to give opinion or decision about something. You make a judgment. You go into the store. You see all kinds of apples, and you make a judgment of which ones to pick. Are you going to buy gala? Are you going to buy pink lady? Are you going to buy whatever other version of apples there is? You're making a separation. That's judgment. You're not condemning the apples. <laughs> okay? So, Christ is the one appointed by God to make judgment. In other words, to make decision and judge to two outcomes. One of either outcomes. Condemnation or justification. So judgment is unto damnation, which is condemnation, or unto justification. So just to hear judgment, a lot of people think, oh, judgment means it's condemnation. No. Jesus says, as the judge, the one who believes has already been judged by me. They have passed from death, which is condemnation, 
the judgment of sin to life, which is justification from sin. So faith is not the cause of the passing, but is the evidence of having passed from death to life. That's what I mean. So believers are not the objects of God's coming tribulation wrath. Believers are not objects of God's wrath. First Thessalonians 5, 9 to 11. Paul says, For God did not appoint us to wrath. God did not appoint us to damnation, to condemnation, but to obtain salvation through our Lord Jesus Christ, who died for us. So the dying of Christ is what took us out of damnation. That's the connection. Who died for us, that whether we work or sleep, we should live together with him, Therefore, comfort each other, edify one another, just as you also are doing. So comfort one another with this, that you are not appointed to wrath because you believe. The Lord Jesus delivered us and will deliver us from the wrath to come. Romans 8, 1. There's therefore now no condemnation. No damnation to those who live their lives well. <laughs> Is that what Paul said? No. Therefore, now no condemnation to those who are in Christ, who do not walk according to the flesh, which means who do not walk according to the righteousness of the law, but according to the spirit, which is the righteousness of Christ. That's the distinction. Paul then repeats, going back to our text, the same truths that is stated in verse 9, in different words, in verse 10, Romans 5, and says, For if when we were enemies, we were reconciled to God through the death of his son, much more having been reconciled, we shall be saved by his life. When and where were the elect reconciled to God? When they were enemies to God. But were reconciled to God through the death of his son. So the death of Christ was the event and the time of reconciliation. The cross is what made peace with God from the sin and separation that had come through Adam. So the elect are not reconciled to God because of their faith or at faith. They were reconciled to God through an act of God, 
through the cross, through the death of Christ. So the faith that we have been given looks to the reconciliation that happened on Mount Calvary. When men and women complicate the gospel, which they are apt to do, go back to salvation one-on-one and just go back to the cross. And so we'll go to some world history for some illustration. And I read this online. I was just thinking about this. The text that I read online says, to the matter of the Second World War, the first and the second, and this in particular to the first World War, that ended with the Treaty of Versailles. The Treaty of Versailles signed in 1919 at the Palace of Versailles in Paris, France at the end of, of World War I quadified peace terms between Germany and the victorious allies. The Treaty of Versailles held Germany responsible for starting the war and imposed harsh penalties on the Germans, including loss of territory, massive reparation payments, and demilitarization. Those were the terms. The Second World War, also German involved (laughs) as instigator, was also concluded by a series of Paris or Paris peace treaties in 1947. And all these treaties had their terms that were agreed upon by both the victors and the defeated nations. But the terms were imposed on the nations that had been defeated. It is the victors who impose the terms of peace. And that to say the matter of our reconciliation and peace treaty with God was concluded and ratified some 2,000 years ago on terms that were wholly imposed by God, but were favorable to us. The peace treaty already ratified, but imposed by God, but in our favor. That's a scandal. That's a good news. Verse 10. By the way, we're going up to verse 11, so we are close. Verse 10. Much more, having been reconciled, we we shall be saved by his life. Some see Paul as saying that we shall be saved by the Lord's earthly life. No, that's not the context. We are moving from the death of Christ to his resurrection, to his being seated, to the end of the ages. So this is an eschatological conversation as and is in reference 
to the life of the, of the resurrected Christ. Hebrews 7, 24 to 26 for commentary. Hebrews 7, 24 to 26. The writer is making a comparison between the priesthood of the law and its weakness and the priesthood of Christ. But he, that is Christ, because he continues forever. How does Christ continue forever? Because of the resurrection. Has an unchangeable priesthood, unlike the priesthood of the law. Therefore, he is also able to serve to the uttermost, serve to the very end, those who come to God through him, since he ever lives to make intercession for them. He ever lives. So in that ever living, he ever intercedes. Even in the very last days, he uses that life, his resurrected life, to continue to intercede for his people. For such a high priest was fitting for us, who is holy, harmless, undefiled, separate from sinners, and has become higher than the heavens. And that is saying Christ will, in the future, serve all is redeemed from God's wrath, all those that he died for by his intercession as both high priest and advocate and judge. The person who stands for you, this is actually a scandal. Imagine being in trouble and go to court. And the person who is the judge, who is sentencing you, is also your advocate. He's your defender. So he will read the charges and then dismiss them. That's exactly the scandal. That's exactly what is happening. I've done a message on this from Psalm 50, I believe. Verse 11 of Romans 5, and that's our last verse from there, even though I still have some more things to say. <laughs> and, and not only that, but we also rejoice in God through our Lord Jesus Christ, through whom we have now received the reconciliation. At the opening of Romans 5, we were told to rejoice in tribulations and Paul gave reasons for why we should rejoice because we are those who have been justified from all sin and have hope. And now he says, rejoice in God through our Lord Jesus Christ, through whom we have now received the reconciliation. Rejoice in that God has given you the ministry of reconciliation. And reconciliation means a restored relationship. 
And that reconciliation is received. It is freely given. It is not end. And this reconciliation, God accomplished through his son, through his blood, and that we possess and is cause for our rejoicing and praising God that we have received God's reconciliation. But I wanted to speak a little more on the matter of the group of three, the group of things that go together, that is said to have been accomplished by the Lord Jesus in their redemption, propitiation, and reconciliation, all accomplished by his sacrificial death on the cross. Because a lot of preachers will say, oh, Jesus accomplished our salvation, but they don't ever want to say what he actually accomplished. What does that mean? What is included? What is in the brackets? Because if you don't expand the brackets, you can never know what he actually did. And we'll begin with redemption, Romans 3. 24 and 25, even though I'm going to read that again. Romans 3, 24, 25. Paul says, being justified freely by his grace through the redemption that is in Christ Jesus. The redemption that is through or in Christ. Whom God set forth as a propitiation or as propitiation by his blood through faith to demonstrate his righteousness because in his forbearance God had passed over the sins that were previously committed. So redemption is one of the things that Christ accomplished is in respect of sin. And it means to set free by way of payment of a price. The price being the death of Christ on the cross. Not the death of the thief on the cross but the death of Christ on the cross was the redemption price. If Christ had been killed by Herod, that would not have been the redemption price. It had to come by way of the cross. It is what is paid to set free the redemption price is what is paid to set free. And so is also called the ransom. The ransom is what is paid to set free. And Jesus said, the Son of Man gives his life as a ransom for many to set them free. 
Set them free from what? From the condemnation of sin. So what does that mean? It means justification. So you can't talk redemption as happening apart from justification. They go together also. If one is set free from the condemnation of sin, they're justified. And once it is paid and accepted, the immediate result is that those in captivity are set free. They are free to go home. They are free from the charges. And that's what Christ accomplished. Redemption and justification, they go together. They cannot be separated. And some people will say, try to be smart and say, oh, Christ redeemed, but he didn't justify. Until you come 2,000 years later, that's when he justifies you. That's not true. You cannot separate redemption from justification. And someone said, oh, Guyo does not understand redemption accomplished and redemption applied foolishness. I understand that. Very clearly. Paul says, Galatians 3.13, Christ has redeemed us from the curse of the law. That's from the condemnation of the law. That is from the captivity of the law and its condemnation. And how did he do that? How did he redeem us? How did he set us free? How did he justify us from it? Having become a curse for us. When did Jesus become a curse for us? When he was hung on Mount Calvary. For it is written, cursed is everyone who, in, who hangs on a tree. Ephesians 1.7 In him we have redemption. Through his blood. Read that and underline that. In him, in Christ, we have redemption. Through his blood. And what is that? The forgiveness of sins. What is the forgiveness of sins? It's justification. According to the riches of his grace. So redemption and forgiveness of sins is justification. They go together. The birds of the same feather. They flock together. So with that, we also have propitiation. To propitiate is to appease the wrath of a deity by way of sacrifice. And so it pertains to God. Propitiation was done to God and not to the devil, and not to the Pope. Because we never sinned against the devil. We never sinned against the Pope, but God. The Pope is a sinner. <laughs> so propitiate means a putting away of wrath, a putting away of wrath, by way of satisfaction of what was odd. And what was odd by us was our sin debt. 
which Christ made good when he died. So satisfaction made by the proper atoning sacrifice, which is the shedding of blood. Romans 3, 24 and to 26. Paul says, being justified freely by his grace through the redemption that is in Christ Jesus, whom God set forth as propitiation by his blood. Propitiation by his blood. Justified by his blood. Propitiation by his blood. Through faith. To demonstrate his righteousness. Because in his forbearance, God had passed over the sins that were previously committed to demonstrate at the present time his righteousness, that he might be just and the justifier of the one who has faith in Christ. God the just and the justifier because of the redemption and because of the propitiation that is in the blood of Christ that answered to the justice of God. And so God has a good basis on which to justify Caitlin and not be corrupt. First John 2, 1 and 2. First John 2, 1 and 2. My little children, these things I write to you so that you may not sin. And if anyone sins, which they will, <laughs> let them go on a fast. Let them cry a river. No. John says, we have an advocate with the Father. We have a family lawyer. That's the translation of the advocate there, the family lawyer. We have an advocate with the Father, Jesus Christ, so he's identified, he is the righteous. So we have a righteous advocate, and he himself is the propitiation for our sins. And not for our sins only, but also for the whole world. Not the whole world in the sense of Every man without exception, but this John, who is a Jew, who is expanding the matter of the gospel and saying Christ has the redeemed from every tribe, tongue, people, and nation beyond the borders of Israel, beyond the national borders of the Jews, the whole world in that context. But Christ is the propitiation. He is the satisfaction for every sin that you are now committing. That's what he's saying. And where there's redemption, there's forgiveness of sins. And where there's propitiation, there must needs be a putting away of wrath. And where these are, there must be reconciliation. So reconciliation happens because redemption happened. 
and the deity, God, was propitiated. He was satisfied. He accepted the payment when it was given. So reconciliation is between God and man. Reconciliation was not between God and Christ. It was between God and sinful man. But the terms of peace were set and done by God himself in Christ. 2 Corinthians 5, 18 to 20. Let's go there. 2 Corinthians 5, 18 to 20. Paul says, now all things are of God. Who has reconciled us to himself through Jesus Christ. And has given us the ministry of reconciliation. That is, that God was in Christ reconciling the world to himself. And how did he do that? Not imputing their trespasses to them. God did not impute your sins to you. He imputed them to Christ and has committed to us the word of reconciliation now then, we are ambassadors for Christ. As though God were pleading through us, we implore you on Christ's behalf, be reconciled to God. This is just the matter of gospel declaration. When we tell people, this is the way of salvation, come to Christ. And the elect will come. Because the sheep will hear the message of reconciliation. Colossians 1, 19-22. Paul says, for it pleased the Father that in him or in him all the fullness should dwell. The fullness of God should dwell in Christ, in bodily form. And by him to reconcile all things to himself. By him, whether things on earth or things in heaven, having made peace through the blood of his cross. And you who once were alienated and enemies in your mind by wicked works, yet now he has reconciled in the body of his flesh through death to present you holy and blameless and above reproach in his sight. So that's what the reconciliation accomplished for us. It has given us a status where God sees us as holy and blameless and above reproach in his sight. In my sight, you may not be above reproach. (laughs) But in his sight, we are above reproach. So reconciliation is the removal of enmity that stands between people and God. It is for people. It gave them peace with God. And God still remains happy, even if he does not reconcile to anybody. But sinners cannot afford not to be reconciled to God. They are in serious trouble. Okay? So that's a distinction. Conclusion. This is God's gospel. This is the good news. 
we do not make it the good news. God is he who said, it's called the gospel. That we who were without strength, who were withered, and were bent and bowed down, and could not in no way lift ourselves up, have found strength to stand in this grace. Because in due time, in the right time, Christ came and made us straight. Us who were the ungodly, have been pronounced as being holy, as being blameless, and above reproach. As who were sinners, and are still sinners, Christ died for us and justified us by the blood of his cross. Christ Jesus, the propitiation, the satisfaction of every one of our sins, as who were the enemies God has reconciled to himself and made peace by not imputing our sins to us, but imputing them to Christ and Christ having already taken care of them. And the summary of it, of everything that we are saying is 2 Corinthians 5.21 For he made him who knew no sin, to be sin for us, that we might become the righteousness of God in him. And that, and to that we say, Amen. And we are done. God be praised. I pray that you gleaned something useful. I'm going to say something before people leave. I'm going to tell you the honest truth. You cannot listen to these messages one time. There's no way. There is absolutely no way you're going to listen to this message one time and get everything that I give. You're going to have to listen two, three, four times. Because I do the same, and I'm the one who was given to write it. You'll be benefited more when you repeat, because you miss out a lot of things that you thought you had but did not hear. Pay attention. Listen to what God is teaching. Okay? There's a discipline to listening. God keep you and bless you. We'll see you again next week. The Lord willing, be praying for us as we are praying for you. Thank you. Let's pray. <laughs> oh, dear Heavenly Father, Lord, we thank you for all that you've given us to hear this morning. We pray that you continue to sustain us and to protect us, and to keep assuring us of our salvation that is in Christ, and to rejoice in that, even in our own tribulations, the things that continue to burden us, may you cause us to keep looking to Christ. We honor you, glorify you for things we pray in Jesus' name. Amen.